0: One of the major things that I just repeat to myself and to other people over and over again from Professor Susan Young is that pills don't teach skills. Meds can't do everything. We need to build that structure of therapy, of coaching, of meds if we're going to try them, but also making sure that our tapestry has got the things in there that we need, not just to function in the world, but to thrive. And That is a work in progress and that takes a long time to do but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it.
1: Hi, Hurt to Healing listeners, and welcome back to season four with me, Pandora Morris. I can't believe it's been nearly a year since I started having these incredibly raw and honest conversations with wonderful guests from all walks of life about their own invisible mental health struggles. Those of you that have been here since the start will know that I myself have struggled with my mental health for many years, and it was only recently that I started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to start this podcast to create a safe space where I could try and help some of you on your own healing journeys. This season is full of more fantastic conversations, and I hope that hearing these will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. In today's episode, I delve into the world of adult ADHD with Kat Brown, a seasoned freelance journalist and mental health advocate. Kat's book, is Not a Bloody Trend, provides us with a guide to navigating life with ADHD in adulthood, a journey she eloquently shares with us. Kat's exploration of adult ADHD takes us through the challenges of diagnosis and candidly reflects on the complexities of masking, The emotional nuances of looking back on missed recognitions, and the interconnectedness of ADHD with past struggles. Throughout the interview, Kat graciously shares tools and lifestyle changes that have made her life more manageable. Join us for a candid conversation as Kat Brown unravels the mysteries and realities of living with adult ADHD. So, Kat, would you start by telling us about your ADHD diagnosis?
0: Yes um the diagnosis when it actually came was probably the smallest moment of the lot it's the actual process of getting one that so many people now are obviously finding is incredibly difficult uh waiting lists in the UK particularly are staggering on the NHS even with the help of in England A program like Right to Choose, which is where people can skip ahead a little bit and be diagnosed by an NHS approved private provider. And I wish I'd known about that in 2020. But the actual diagnosis for me, I had a sort of 90 minute, not chat, but sort of fairly in depth conversation with a psychiatrist who went through my medical history, all of the reasons why I thought an ADHD diagnosis would apply to me. They were very careful to make sure that we didn't just discuss home or work or or education or anything like that, because in order to get an ADHD diagnosis, symptoms need to be presented in all areas of your life, not just in one. There are lots and lots of what I understand are called differential diagnoses for ADHD. So there's lots of overlaps with trauma for one and can be with autism as well. So it's very important that when we are being diagnosed, that we have somebody A, who has a lot of experience in the NHS alongside their private practice, if for example, we're going privately, but also making sure that they are an expert in ADHD and also mental conditions more widely. You need to be able to tell things apart and also to be able to then perhaps direct somebody like me to another clinician. That sort of 90-minute chat You also need to have corresponding evidence from somebody that knew you in childhood and knows you now. So, in my case, I directed my psychiatrist towards my dad and towards my husband. My dad didn't actually recognize any of the signs of ADHD in me as a child. So, we needed a second form. And again, it should be rigorous. I didn't have my school reports because at the time I was 37. And unsurprisingly, my parents didn't really think that they were going to need my school reports again. So, I coughed up another, I think, 200 quid for a test called a QB check, in which you sort of spend 20 minutes pressing buttons on your keyboard as and when you see particular things appearing on screen, which sounds like the easiest thing in the world to pass or get wrong, if you like. If you have an ADHD brain, it's very likely that you will be thinking as I or lots of the other people I've spoken to who've also had this test will be thinking, which is, oh, hang on. I played Pokemon really obsessively for many, many years. I'm I'm really good at screen games. Screen games hold my attention. Am I going to be too good at this game? Am I going to pass this game? Did I remember to put chopped tomatoes on my shopping list? And then suddenly you'll realise that five minutes have gone past and you've just been staring into space and haven't done anything with the test at all. But when it sort of came down to it, I had my follow-up appointment with my psychiatrist, another £200, and he gave me the results and was also incredibly kind. I can't remember the exact wording. I should really have it burnt into my head, but he just said that to have achieved what I had with the challenges that I had faced without realising it was something that I should be really proud of, and I should take some time to appreciate that. And obviously, I took no time at all to appreciate that and was like, right, what's happening next?
1: And I mean, it's such a murky ground, isn't it? Really diagnosis with ADHD, because there is so much overlap, uh, particularly with uh, dyslexia, dyspraxia, autism, OCD. I mean, I think you probably can pick a lot of symptoms from each disorder and, and identify with them, as indeed I do with OCD. But do you think looking back that ADHD was the big boss, as you describe it as?
0: Yes, I really do. I think an interesting thing when people talk about ADHD in general is that some people will be like, yeah, but we're all a little ADHD. And it's like, well, yes, what on earth do you think symptoms are? They are characteristics that manifest in certain ways. It could be mental, it could be physical. But the point is, is that ADHD is when you have these symptoms expressing themselves chronically. So, Over very long periods of time, and to an extent where they are significantly and negatively impacting multiple areas of your life. I can get quite obsessive about the state of my house and how clean it is when I am stressed. That doesn't mean that I have OCD. I pick the skin on my nails, which is why I use biab manicures to stop me from doing that. That doesn't mean that I have a skin picking disorder. But when I Read up on all of the different ways that ADHD can express itself and all of the different other disorders and experiences that people can have, it rang a lot of bells. And it's not necessarily that you would go in, for example, a dyslexia diagnosis and come out with an ADHD one. It's that, for example, dyslexia can be what's called a comorbidity. So that is a co occurring disorder or condition. That happens alongside the ADHD. Uh, depression, anxiety, insomnia, eating disorders, disordered eating in general, lots and lots of different things can be comorbid with ADHD. And it's been so interesting talking to like the actual proper experts as to people that have seen four TikToks and gone, well, I guess I'm an ADHD coach now, about how sometimes depression can manifest as a result of ADHD and not necessarily as it may be an an independent condition in its own right, but sometimes, for example, if you if you hear really negative things about yourself or if you aren't able to operate as you believe normal in quotes people do, then that's going to lead to you becoming depressed and in some cases anxious as well.
1: Yeah, I'd like to pick up on two points actually, because I think you make the really interesting point about the comorbidities and I think so often people like want to know if if it's a chicken or egg situation it's like but what's the underlying cause of it all and i know that you've spoken a lot about your binge eating and also drug abuse and alcohol abuse during your university years which may be seen as normal by some but i think you've definitely identified it as being problematic and i'd love to know what your thoughts are around that and how you have managed those over the years
0: I mean, it's interesting thinking about the idea of psychiatrists dealing with anything in a linear way, because I think it's very tempting to want to pull out a pattern, but a pattern is not necessarily what we're going to get. I very much identify with the Oscar winning film of a couple of years ago, Everything Everywhere All at Once. That was certainly what my experience of my brain felt like. Because it it wasn't like, oh, okay, I'm going to be treated for depression for a few years, partly because I was never treated for depression. All the way through my teens, nobody identified it, let alone treated it, or or insomnia, or anxiety, or self-harm, or any of these things. Um, I didn't even know that they were conditions or symptoms. They were simply, to me and to my mind, to my young mind, ways that my defective self Sort of manifested, if you like. And arguably, that would be the same with booze as well. I think, like lots of perhaps slightly socially anxious teenagers, I found the alcohol was amazing. It opened all of us up. It was just unfortunate that if you kept going with it, then you might end up blacking out or being sick or something like that. I never really used drugs that much, actually. I think because the advertising campaigns of the 90s and particularly those dreadful stories around young people who died really made their mark on me. But also because alcohol was very socially acceptable. It's easy to lean into just getting quietly battered with people at sixth form, at school, at university, at the pub after work in the early 2000s and that sort of thing. They're all sort of ways of being convivial and being sociable and That was something that I really desperately sought was some form of connection, just because I felt like I didn't know how to be a human being at all. I mean, how related do you think the binge eating particularly I'm interested in? Because I know that that is
1: quite a common comorbidity with ADHD. Do you feel it was inextricably linked to the ADHD or do you still... Now that your ADHD is more under control and you're managing it much better, would you say that the symptoms of the binge eating have definitely subsided?
0: Interestingly, I feel like the symptoms didn't necessarily go away after I had outpatient therapy for BED several years ago, although it did make me understand that comfort eating was something very different to binge eating. And certainly when I get PMT, all bets are off and I'm going and just eating an entire packet of weetos in front of the tv but that's fine because i know why it is whereas with binge eating it would be comforting self soothing stimulating but it would almost be a ritual and i would almost go into a zombie trance over certain types of foods and if i didn't manage to get whatever those foods were and to have them in the way that i wanted then i'd usually have to repeat that again in order to get the sort of blissed out zoning out feeling which again is what lots of people achieve through drugs or through shopping, through sex, through relationships even in some cases. But it is that feeling of swamping yourself with good feelings to try and blot out the bad feelings. And certainly when I was drinking or or eating in those ritualistic ways, it never felt like I was doing it. It felt like I was putting these processes in place Almost to try and, I don't know, inflate an avatar that was cat, sort of almost like playing a video game, being slightly distanced from that. And obviously, something that has dramatically changed since I got this diagnosis was the understanding of why I found so many things quite difficult, but also why I did them. It just gave me a launch pad to be able to explore not just different therapies, but actually properly accepting and understanding myself in a way that I had just never let myself do for all those years when I just thought I was defective and it was my job to try and fix myself and put those sticking plasters together until I was just about human shaped and could pass as somebody in the world. What other forms of therapy have you found
1: the most helpful since your diagnosis?
0: I went to go and see a brilliant therapist. I thought I was going to go and see them about the fact that I couldn't have children, which had been a fairly major part of my life since I had failed IVF in 2019 and a follow up with a, another clinic in 2020 during lockdown over the phone. And that just wasn't going to be something for me and my husband. And actually, this new therapist and I, we just never talked about children at all. We just spoke about ADHD all the time because. I didn't realise quite how much of my life, of the physical issues that I've had or, or of anything else had really just been like dramatically impacted by this underlying part of me. And that was just completely fascinating, not least because I was given rigorous understanding of the fact that I wasn't a broken person. Like She would regularly sort of almost read out lists back to myself of things that I'd achieved or done so that I would then repeat those to myself rather than go, oh no, you know, I'm a I'm a rubbish person really. Just scrape me off your shoe and we'll we'll carry on about our day. And that was almost incredible. I'd sort of gone there to try and process not just more about my past but my present. But the work that we did together really helped to work towards how I saw myself as a person, full stop. And that was really, really extraordinary.
1: I think it is so common for people with mental health issues. You're so consumed by your thoughts and you're so in your head. And again, going back to that avatar analogy you used, you're so just generally detached from who you are as a person. And I think that's the real tragedy is that a lot of people can't step outside their whatever, you know, their condition or whatever you want to call it, because they're so terrified of actually really discovering
0: who they are. Stigma is, God, it's got a lot to answer for in all areas of identity, the intersections that we experience ourselves and with other people. I mean, stigma is really one of the reasons why there are so many people being diagnosed with ADHD as adults now, because partly in the UK, particularly, there really hasn't been any understanding of, of neurological conditions. And neurodiversity, other than perhaps dyslexia, which certainly when I was at school in the 90s was really the only one that was accepted and acceptable, which is really crucial. But the social stigma—like nobody wants their child to, again, bunny ears—have something wrong with them that's going to make going through life difficult. I mean, we only have to look at the way that um, LGBTQIA plus individuals coming out have very frequently encountered disappointment, if not all-out horror from family members. And that's not just them disapproving at this facet of their loved one. It's them looking at society and going, your life is going to be so much harder. My life has been very easy in lots of ways. And then internally, it's been an absolute shit show. And I for one wish that I had known Years and years and years earlier, because then I would have understood myself more. I could have accepted myself more. And I might not have told anybody, although that said, I was bullied all the way through school because I'm very tall, have red hair, and was deemed to be quite weird. So, you know, maybe just add some more stigma on and I could probably have taken it. But certainly, the more that people are making it clear that neurodivergence, different ways of being, for one, make up a society, but also two have always been here. Uh, And there are so many scientific papers, journals, even in in visual art as well. These lovely evidences of, of neurodivergence dating back hundreds of years, amazingly enough, long before sunny delight and video games are invented. But it's just now that the light is being shone on this stigma and it just makes it slowly, but it makes it wither away and die. And I just I just want stigma to die.
1: Yeah, as do I. I think shame, judgment and stigma, mm. we could do a lot if we could move away from those because I think they're just crippling in themselves and, and feeling those emotions really keeps whatever disorder you're suffering with alive mm. in you because it's just like oxygen for them.
0: It is. And it comes from other people as well. Very often when somebody is saying something homophobic, transphobic or judgmental. I mean, that's the reason why I called my book It's Not a Bloody Trend because I got so fed up of people saying, oh, it's fashionable. I always feel, and the evidence is there subconsciously, that whenever people do say these things, there is an element of recognition in themselves that they're just feeling envious or annoyed or hateful in a way about somebody else, the idea of somebody else having an opportunity that perhaps they didn't have. And Certainly, we, we see this a lot when people you know, lift up the ladders after them when they've managed to achieve something significant. They don't necessarily want to share that with other people, whereas the whole idea about equity rather than equality is making improvements accessible to everybody, regardless of what their situation is.
1: Well, I think there's been a wider recognition now that actually neurodivergency is is more aligned with being normal. I think now, if you're <laughs> if you're considered to be totally normal, it's sort of abnormal. And what is normal anyway? It's just such a ridiculous notion and concept that I it just annoys me when anyone says. But that's
0: just not normal. <laughs> it's almost as though people mean nice. They mean social niceties and that sort of thing, or we don't talk about that, or particularly in in England, that god-awful stiff upper lip. And it's fascinating seeing how generations have changed this. Uh, I mean, even in the recognition of something like PTSD, I was reading The Body Keeps the Score by Vessel van der Kolk, I think his name is, that brilliant book about trauma, and saying that PTSD only really became recognised as such when a group of veterans Went and petitioned for it in the 80s, which is incredibly recent. Before that, decades before, it was sort of known as shell shock. And, you know, ADHD, as we call it now, was only named so in the 80s. And yet people have been treated for what was then called hyperkinetic syndrome since the 50s, certainly with amphetamines. So all of these things have been. Wobbling around for, for decades in various forms. And it's only when things have a name, a label, if you like, so that we can see inside the jar and see what's going on, that we can be like, oh, it's not that you're, or oh, I don't know, eccentric or scatty or thoughtless or all of these other adjectives that have always been used as personality flaws. And it's not to say that, you know, everybody under the sun has a condition or something like that. But the thing is, is where intersectionality comes into it is that everybody's experience of life is also going to be impacted by whether they're male or female, their their gender identity, their sexuality, race certainly, class enormously, but also like childhood trauma, uh, their upbringing, what their family situation is like, whether their experience of school was, was a good one. All of these things impact on us in so many different ways and it means that even for people who are quote-unquote normal or neurotypical or however we might refer to that in future, their experience is going to be light years different to even just the person next to them in the street. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this
1: podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Kat, I'd love for you to tell the listeners about how your ADHD really manifests itself, some of the behaviors. That you were compelled to do and the little rituals, and also the bigger, the larger impact that it had until you got your diagnosis?
0: I think the main impact for me was just that I knew that something was very wrong. It was like the Jaws theme tune humming along in my head for years. And it was something that I knew well before I was what we would now term an adult. So let's say 25 for the sake of argument. It was something that I knew intrinsically from a really Young age, I just knew that I found operating in some social areas quite challenging. Like I found small talk abysmal, and I didn't understand why, like family members would say certain things when they didn't necessarily mean them. I mean, I did loads of acting and that sort of thing. That like the concept of acting was absolutely not alien to me, but just some of the ways that people behaved, I just found completely inexplicable. Then there was sort of the manifestations of what we'd think of as classic ADHD. So in my second year of university, when I moved out of halls and was living in a house, I lost seven sets of house keys in one year. I think I threw one set of them away with shopping bags and my parents then bought me a massive block of wood that just had the bloody keys written on it in paint, (laughs) which was excellent. (laughs) I was also incredibly tired all the time. Um, I had real issues with sleep that stemmed right back in. Since my tween years, I suppose, would call them now. And in my final year of university, I just ended up trying to lean into it a bit. So I'd do essays at four o'clock in the morning or that sort of thing. I was also studying modern languages, and most of my seminars and lectures were at nine o'clock in the morning, which now, absolutely no problem with at all. That's fine. But back then, I just found utterly, utterly hellish. Also, because all of the lights in the lecture theatres would be that really bright white light that in some people just sends you to sleep and that was certainly how it happened to me but because i was reasonably intelligent and also incredibly anxious i managed to cover my ass most of the time i got decent gcse's reasonably good a levels i failed one of my modules in my first year of university and had to resit that again but that set me off to the extent that i went to my family gp and that was when depression was first discussed because I went there and I was just like, if I flunk out of university, I'm, I know exactly what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. And It turned out that that wasn't normal, but I didn't know that because I had no access to what normal was. All I had was the fact that I was bullied for how I was and what I looked like, and that nothing I seemed to do would improve that. I did beat up one of the bullies who was a boy in my fourth year of school, and that <laughs> sort of put a pause on that for the time being. But again, this is why when people talk about social media being a negative thing, on the one hand, uncategorically, yes, uh, there are lots and lots of elements of social media that are again, really pernicious. And I think we're going to look back and, and wonder why on earth we gave the world access to it with absolutely no boundaries whatsoever. But in terms of community, in terms of investigating in terms of being able to casually fall across the right thing on the internet rather than going into the library and not knowing about something just simply because you didn't put the right book off the shelf. It was life-changing for me in so many different ways. Yeah, I mean, it is the most extraordinary
1: resource if harnessed in a a positive, constructive way. But as you said, this sort of unboundaried, unfiltered access to all this information. And uh, also, as you said earlier, it's like people self-diagnosing themselves with all these disorders, as well as people then proclaiming to be experts on a number of conditions just baffles me on a daily basis.
0: I think that's really where as adults, we have to remember that we are adults and we've got to whatever age we are now by exercising judgment. And just because we're perhaps feeling a bit more vulnerable now, because we might be going, oh, maybe this explains why I did that terrible thing to that person in 2004 or something that we've been holding on to since then. Just because we're feeling like the underside of armadillos doesn't mean that we have to lose that casing to stretch (laughs) that bizarre metaphor a little bit further. And it means that in everything, whatever we read, whatever we see, we have to analyse who's writing it. Where's it from? What's their specialism? What's their expertise? Just because this person has a platform, a massive platform on TikTok, does that mean that they have a medical background? If they do have a medical background, are they a psychiatrist or is it a psychologist, as was the case in Private Eye Magazine a few years ago, wanging on about diagnosis, despite the fact that they were (laughs) they weren't allowed to do diagnosis? And same in the newspapers as well. What is the angle here? What is the person or the paper getting out of it? You have to use your second thoughts quite a lot. You can't just launch in and go, oh my God, well, you know, that's a headline. Therefore, it must be true, because that's sadly not (laughs) not how a lot of media works.
1: I know that diagnosis in adults has become much more common now of ADHD. And I think a lot of people take their children to a psychiatrist to try and get a diagnosis of something. And often, I don't know if this was your experience, but the psychiatrist will look at a family history and it is genetic. And so then a lot of adults then find themselves reflecting on whether they might actually have ADHD as parents and they've then passed it on to their children. Do you think that that's why ADHD diagnosis in adults has become more common, especially in women? Or do you think it's due to other things?
0: that is partly because there is a historical underdiagnosis of women as there is in men who don't present in the way that certain ADHD symptoms have been documented through research particularly through the 70s so for example if you're if you're a hyperactive presenting white male then it's probably much more likely that you would be picked up in that way but if you are a global majority if you are gay or trans or anything like that or if you have Just anything that makes you, again, bunny ears, not typical, then that's going to mean that you're going to be missed as well. ADHD in adults was only really documented in the NICE guidelines in 2008 in the UK, so incredibly recently. And the way that women often present with ADHD is partly due to its thought social conditioning that, you know, nice girls don't do this, blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, nice girls must be polite and not run around and, and do all this sort of thing. It means that very often the hyperactivity and, and impulsivity in women doesn't necessarily present as it might have done in a little boy, like running around causing mayhem, but it might be racing thoughts. It might be internalized in that way. And then often women can present the inattentive side with daydreaming, uh, and that sort of thing, so what is really interesting though is that it 's not necessarily that adhd is genetic, but it is up to eighty percent heritable, so it means that there is that genetic element but there doesn 't necessarily be need to be adhd specifically in the upper tiers of your family tree in order for you or your child to have adhd so this is from speaking to one of my experts in the book again, but it's more just if there are incidences of mental health conditions, neurological conditions in the family tree, then that existence in itself. So, my granny having seasonal affective disorder, for example, not that obviously it was known as that at the time, that sort of trickles down. And then that, just that existence of that mental health issue can then lead to ADHD further down. One of my cousins on another side of the family has ADHD. And to my knowledge, they're, they're, other than SAD, there isn't any sort of mental health conditions there, or certainly not other ADHD, but it's just all sort of whatever is there that we don't know about has just trickled down and, and landed in, in them and me. I'd love you to delve into masking and, and how you masked your ADHD
1: and whether that's maybe a factor that contributes to this rise in diagnoses amongst older people.
0: It's simply just a term, I think, largely borrowed from the autistic community of where you, well, I suppose on the one hand, it's basic social skills. It's stuff like taking the temperature of the room. Are you going to come into a really raucous room where everybody is Cheerful and loud and excited, and are you just going to go and sit in a corner and open a book? Probably not. You might sort of go, okay, everybody's on a high for some reason. I'll go in and be really excited. It's using social techniques to make other people feel comfortable around you and so that you can fit in with people and situations. Uh, it might involve keeping your hands and body still if you're usually quite demonstrative. It might involve keeping your voice lower and more regular. It might involve talking or not talking about specific things. And really crucially as well, it can involve mimicking the people that you're with. We see this very often in people at work. If you think of somewhere where there's a real power dynamic, so I don't know, you're the intern and suddenly you end up speaking to the CEO, you're probably not going to behave as you would if you were speaking to one of your fellow interns. You might be either standing there rooted with fear, or you'd be there going, oh God, trying to have flashbacks to how my mum told me to speak to people at the one time I went to church a year or something like that. It's all of those coping mechanisms that come in, but also can be really quite exhausting to do.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it is very interesting because I think that's also a trait that's associated with autism. And I think sometimes mistakenly, actually, you get misdiagnosed because of masking. It's a very interesting concept and I think it's something that does need to be explored more because I think it it does again feed into this notion of being normal and being socially acceptable. And then it also for me it contributes to this self acceptance and actually really discovering who you are. Because if you if you spent your lifetime masking your true self, you're so detached from that inner sort of essence, as it were, that you really need to relearn it
0: as an adult. Yeah, you really do. And also just a note on autism. I think we've had so many stereotypes of what it means to be an autistic person, largely thanks to the success of films like Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman. But as with ADHD, as with every form of neurodiversity, there is a constellation of symptoms and different ways that, that people can present as an autistic person, somebody with ADHD, anything like that. And there have been some wonderful books and podcasts, again, often written by uh, female comedians about their experiences of life before and after an autism diagnosis. But I think we've, again, been conditioned by stigma, by media presentation to think that autism purely means people with the most significant needs. Whereas there will be plenty of people with autism not that they don't have any needs at all, but that they won't necessarily need a support worker, for example. They might need support in different ways. They might need more rest, more quiet, noise-canceling headphones. But yeah, it's really important that we just remember that one of the reasons that it can take so long for people to pursue a diagnosis is because there's nothing binary about it. All of these things present in completely different ways. ADHD isn't really just about hyperactivity. It's arguably more about emotional dysregulation than anything else. And so it's perfectly possible to be autistic, be incredibly empathetic and be very good with people, but also to have ADHD and not present as physically hyperactive at all and be much more inattentive and and inward with your hyperactivity.
1: I want to really ask about how you manage today and what strategies you have in place. And also to touch on medication and i know you've had a again quite a sort of tumultuous journey through that but now what's the sort of status quo and yeah what are your bottom line behaviors
0: well again diagnosis with adhd is really important if you want to have medication and one of the people i spoke to from the book has not pursued a diagnosis because they're not interested in meds they use exercise, being in nature, and also making sure that their home environment is how they like it, just to sort of keep everything comfortable. My number one thing is my amazing cleaner, Kaja, who's cleaned for us for about seven years. Uh, if I was living on my own, I would not have a cleaner, but I cannot deal with other people's crap, basically, whether that is in the past, it was a flatmate, made lodger, and now it's my husband. It just removes any kind of arguments about whose turn it is to do what. But also crucially, it means that once a week, our home is reset, the bedding has changed, our home is clean, it is vacuumed, because there might be times when my energy levels absolutely plummet through the floor and I can't do anything. I mean, my husband's been away this week and we've got the Christmas tree here and I just haven't put the lights up and decorated it yet because I've been too busy with work and I haven't been able to prioritise that. So that just sort of means that home is always lovely. And that is just such a privileged balancing for me to have. The other one, God, this is going to make me sound like the world's richest woman, uh, an it? Apple watch, which I hasten to add, you can get secondhand off eBay. This is crucial for me because I need it for timers and it gives me haptic reminders. So silent, but little, almost like somebody's poking my wrist, reminders of what's coming up in my calendar. Um and I also use the Calm app. Anybody listening to this will have their own favourite or least offensive meditation app, but I just love the sleep stories on Calm. I never really use it for the meditation because I still have quite a lot of issues of paying attention to meditation. I find that ironically I meditate more if I'm going for a lovely walk in Richmond Park or or going horse riding with friends or something. I'm much more able to be in the moment that way. But I love the sleep stories. And and then just the lastly. And again, I spend tons on this, but every four or five weeks or so, I go and get my nails done with that builder in a bottle gel that literally just does not move. And that means that part of me always looks presentable. And so I'm looking down at my hands and I go, there is a presentable, capable woman, even if inside things are sort of not necessarily running particularly well. I also gave up alcohol a few years ago and really annoyingly, that is super helpful. And then all the boring, usual stuff like... Getting enough sleep, listening to my body, particularly if I get incredibly tired and my energy levels just fall, which is so annoying. And coaching, therapy when I can afford it. I mean, my God, over the last few years, I just haven't had hobbies. I haven't been horse riding because all my money has gone on private medical care, therapy, coaching, whatever. And again, for me, meds are incredibly useful. I'd spent a good year to two years trying to get the structure of it right. Because when I started, I was also on antidepressants and also weaving in things like beta blockers for physical manifestations of anxiety. But I've now got it to a point where I'm, I'm really happy with it. And I know what the meds will do and what they don't do. Because when I tried them for the first time, which was actually just before my diagnosis, I felt that the sort of Term that people often use is it's almost as if all the tabs in your head have been closed and you can just focus on one thing. And to be honest, I've never felt as good as that again, but I know that that is because I thought then, oh my God, this is going to be the thing that fixes me. And one of the major things that I just repeat to myself and to other people over and over again from Professor Susan Young is that pills don't teach skills, meds can't do everything. We need to build that structure of therapy of coaching off meds if we're going to try them, but also like not just exercise, not just moving your body as people euphemistically say, finding something fun that you like to do and that gives you pleasure. And making sure that you get outside and and get to to do lovely things, making sure that there is beauty in your life, making sure that your brain is being able to sort of grasp onto lovely things and amongst all the very distinctly unlovely things that we all go through in life alongside our own personal health issues. It's really just making sure that we have this tapestry that will look completely individual for every single person, but making sure that our tapestry has got the things in there that we need, not just to function in the world, but to thrive. And That is a work in progress and that takes a long time to do, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it
1: yeah sometimes you need to look down the mountain to realize how far you've come you might have a long way to go but you still you've come a long way and i think that's something that you convey so beautifully and yeah so eloquently and i just want to say a huge huge thank you for your time and just yeah and, and your book which is just so exciting
0: thank you pandora thank you for everything that you and your guests do
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation, so please spread the word.